You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 281 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Today, my guest is Scott Hanselman. He is a programmer, teacher, and speaker. He works out of his home office in Portland, Oregon for the web platform team at Microsoft. He blogs about technology, culture, gadgets, diversity, code, the web, where we're going, and where we've been. He's excited about community, social equity, media, of all, the open web. He has three podcasts and a YouTube channel. One podcast is a weekly talk show on tech, one on occasional one-hour essay on developers' lives, and one on a social media and tech culture show with his friend Lavi. Recently, he wrote an article called Ruby on Rails on Windows is Not Just Possible, It's Fabulous, using WLS till 2 and VS Code. And so I invited him on the show to discuss it. Thanks for joining me today, Scott. Hi, it's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, letting me hang out with you. Absolutely. So, Scott, what is your developer origin story? My developer origin story. This is like my uncle Ben, and I have to think about like when the when I got bit by the radioactive spider that programmed in Logo. Um, when I was eleven, twelve, I was getting into some stuff I needed to not be getting into, and I was kind of on the street causing trouble. And uh, there were some meetings, and there were some principals that got together and talked about me. And my my fifth grade teacher. Uh, noted that I was pretty good with the uh, the Apple II in the uh, in the school, and there was only one right. This wasn't like everyone had a computer or every class had a computer. There was just the computer, the one that the school had, and uh, they let me use it, and that kept me from doing the things that I should not be doing on the weekends, and kept me away from the gangs and the different people in the neighborhood that I needed to not be hanging out with. And that slowly became a thing. And then one day I came home, and our driveway was empty the the car was gone the van our family van was gone wow. and i and i went in and i said where's the van and my dad had sold it and bought a commodore 64 uh, for me and then i spent my weekends in the basement on the commodore 64 and uh, that is how it started oh that is so cool well this is the ruby on rails podcast so i do need to ask what is your experience with ruby on rails my experience with Ruby before Rails was in 2004, 2005, with a thing called Water, W-A-T-I-R, Web Application Testing in Ruby. Uh, that was up at rubyforge.org, and I think that may be long dead uh, as far as that URL. And I, I basically uh, wrote an automation tool that would take, you'd write Ruby, and you'd automate IE, and I worked on that uh, and made it pluggable with NUnit. So basically, I was a .NET developer using a unit testing tool, and I wanted to go and and automate applications as if they were unit tests. So C sharp driving testing driving Ruby driving, um, you know, kind of pre. Well, I wouldn't say pre Selenium, but early early days of Selenium, about 14, 15 years ago. And then Rails kind of shortly thereafter. But uh, I wouldn't call myself like a fully Rails-y person. My, my language of choice is C-sharp. But I also don't like being told that something's not possible. So anytime I f- someone says, oh, you can't do that in Rails, then I just do it in Rails anyway, just to make them feel bad. Oh, I like that. 
Well, you know, the whole idea behind Ruby is developer happiness. And I've always equated you with all of your content and your blogs and just your positive attitude with developer happiness. Oh, so I feel like you. they kind of go hand in hand. That's great. I really appreciate that. That's very kind. I've actually uh, was in Japan and had Matt's on my show, show number uh, 461 and got to hang out with him in 2015. And I think that uh, we being both people who optimize for happiness and being kind of joyful people, we, we vibed right away. Oh, fantastic. So Microsoft has become a huge influence in the developer community. How do you feel that they did it? Well, I mean, I can only speak for what I've watched. So I'm not a, like a spokesperson or anything, but I feel like there was a time when Microsoft said no to everything. Like it was just no was the default answer. And the lawyers would say no, and the bosses would say no, and that's not possible and you can't do that. And through a combination of people doing things without asking, like asking forgiveness rather than asking permission, and people uh, realizing that yes goes farther, we slowly changed the, we've kind of flipped the script um, now people don't say no. They say, well, how can I make that possible? And lawyers say, well, that's a weird thing to ask, but I don't see why not. Let's see how we can do that. And uh, we slowly, in fact, it wasn't Ruby on Rails directly, but one could argue, I just realized this. It's good that you brought this up, Brittany. One could argue that Ruby on Rails started Microsoft's open source transformation because Ruby on Rails was getting people in the ASP.NET space kind of nervous, like, wow, this model view controller is a thing. And like Rails does this and Rails done that. So we went and made ASP.NET MVC, the model view controller, which is effectively uh, .NET on nails, except they told me I couldn't call it that. Right? <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> but it really, it would have been amazing, right? But like, remember early Microsoft, you know, was like sucked when it came to naming. So everything we did, everything we named had to be lame. So uh, we made ASP.NET MVC. I wouldn't say to compete, but you know, it was a co-opetition there uh, to compete with Ruby on Rails. And in doing so, realized it had to be open source, of course. And it was the first major piece of open source. There'd been other stuff before, but for the most part, ASP.NET MVC was the first major open source thing. And then we slowly started going down towards the metal, right? If you make the web application, uh, open source, then you make the compiler open source, and then you make C sharp and, da -da -da -da, and all the way down to the jitter and the runtime and everything. And then we went right back up from the metal and made all of .NET Core open source. And then making you know Ruby on Rails run on IIS on Windows. That was using an H an open source product to do that. So you know you could you could draw at least a straight dotted line from Rails to Microsoft's current excitement around open source. That's awesome. I mean, there's just been so many tools and just an attitude about Microsoft. And I remember hearing that Microsoft had the most amount of code on GitHub at one point. I was just absolutely mm -hmm. amazed by that. Yeah. It's it's interesting because you have to ask yourself, where's how's Microsoft getting paid? Right. Yes. Like how do we make money? And if you think about Facebook where you're the product mm -hmm. and Google where you, the stuff you're searching for is the product and Amazon where everything is the product, you know, where Microsoft wants your for loop. Right? They don't care what your for loop was written in, if it was written in Ruby or whatever, because we're selling compute. So we want you to buy Office. We want you to buy an Xbox. Um, and that's why like things like the Windows phone dying wasn't really like a huge deal. I mean, it was sad, but it didn't like, wasn't major because I have an iPhone, right? And I, I run Word on my iPhone. 
and you know I run React Native apps on my iPhone, and you know I can run stuff that lets Microsoft run for loops in the cloud. So the transformation to cloud really made Microsoft very clear about where their money comes from. So a lot of the kind of shady stuff that they did 30 years ago, they don't have to do anymore. Oh, that's great. Well, let's set up uh, why I brought you onto the show today to talk about your article. So mm -hmm. essentially what happened to me at work, I have been a Mac user for, I would say, the last 10 years and mm. certainly have never coded on anything other than a Mac. Okay. Um, and a my computer failed at work. The, uh -oh. <laughs> the SSD went and unfortunately the logic board went with it as well. Mm. And I'm in an organization of about 100 people. And so... 98% of those users use Windows. And just because I was a developer, they've always allowed us to have a Mac. But things were always weird because <laughs> I was not one of the normal people. Yeah. You know, security patches, printers, displays, you name it. I've always been an odd yeah, one. Yeah, there's out. no sympathy when you're that person, right? Like Absolutely when, not. When you find out that your cousin doesn't like the Avengers movies, you're just like, oh, this is going to be really awkward for the rest of our lives. Exactly. And so I really had the opportunity there to either send the Mac away and probably be down for three or four days. Okay. Or they had a brand new shiny Dell ready to go, all loaded up. And, you know, your article about Ruby on Rails on Windows, you tweeted it out. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took it as a sign that, oh. you know, I think it's good for my career to not only be more flexible, but I thought it was just good for me to, you know, flex my wings a little bit and see if I could pull it off. That's cool. Well, and let's let's give people a little bit of historical context because yeah. no disrespect to the Ruby on Rails community, it has been a fair statement, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Ruby on Rails on Windows being epic has not been a number one priority. Absolutely not. I completely agree with you. It's always been assumed that any of those Rails bridges or Rails girls that you are just going to have a very hard time if you come in with a machine that's not a Mac. Yeah, yeah. And that, and then things like Homebrew or apt-get, mm -hmm. like all of those things are really just, you know, it's the it's the step kid that you didn't like. Windows is like, well, I mean, if you have to run it on Windows. And you remember there was the Ruby on Rails Windows installer projects oh, yes. they, they were that was a valiant effort i mean they worked really hard to make it work absolutely yeah but ultimately it hit it hit the metal it hit the c part of ruby and then kind of fell apart down there at the at the at the, at the metal yeah and you mentioned that you like to take on challenges so i'm curious what was the motivation and behind writing the blog posts well so, I mean, I, I have a Mac, I'm looking at a Mac, and I have a Surface, and I'm turning my head the other direction, and I'm looking at my Surface right now. And, you know, Macs have become, they're fine, but they kind of lost me at the touch bar. So I switched over to a Surface Book 2, and I, I very much enjoy that. And Windows 10, you know, sucks in, incrementally less than Windows 8 did, right? And a, <laughs> I, I happen to be a very much of a hotkey person, so mm -hmm. I really... Unless you have like Quicksilver or you're really good at Spotlight, there's not a lot of hotkeys on, on the the Finder side of Mac. So I, I really like the fact that I can move quickly in Windows with hotkeys. So I I prefer Windows as my place as my my home place, but I want to be able to run anything whenever. And anytime I bump into like, oh, this is a great Rails app, I got to work on that. I'm like, oh man, like, do I need a virtual machine? Like, it's just, it's, uh, this should not be that hard. And then someone was telling me that they too were moving to a Windows machine. And we've got this little internal uh, project right now where we're trying to look at all the little, um, we call them paper cuts, developer paper cuts that make someone not like Windows. Like all the little things 
And you know how when you, you're, well, maybe, maybe you know now, as a Windows person, you're going to mm -hmm. be Googling around and you'll bump into some cool tutorial and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you see the, and now go to the command prompt and you see the dollar sign because the dollar sign is the, un, the unif, unified, universal, I'm at the command prompt thing, right? Absolutely. The command prompt. And then the, the, the Windows person goes, <laughs> you're like, oh, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a greater than sign. Therefore, I should not be here. It's mm -hmm. a very othering feeling. And I was like, you know, we need to make this work. So of course, Windows subsystem for Linux on Windows makes that work. And then uh, some poor person had a similar situation. The computer didn't work anymore, and they wanted to run Rails. And I said, you know, I'm going to see how awesome Rails is on Windows. This episode of the Five by Five Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Heffler and Co. A good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co., creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the Office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple, so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co has been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font family is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co. font library right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time, as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code RUBY. R-U-B-Y, for your discounted checkout. Thank you, Heffler & Co., for sponsoring the show. And did you basically sit there and try to come up with steps knowing that you had this modern tool set with Windows 10? Was mm -hmm. it hard for you to find the steps, or did you reach out to other people? Um, once I knew, well, I, I, I have a little bit of a superpower in that I know some of the people who are working on these things. So f for me, the game of Windows Tetris is slightly easier, like, cause you're playing Tetris with your own machine in the sense of like, okay, well that piece goes here and I'm going to need this and I need virtual box and, and you snap together your own personal, you know, bat belt, your toolkit of stuff, because I know what's coming and what's being worked on. I get to, I get a little bit of a a thing. It's like playing Tetris, but you know the next piece, right? So I have that little preview. So I, I did know that stuff was happening, and I had just come back from um, from OzCon, the open source conference, the O'Reilly Open Source Conference. So I was able to talk to dozens and dozens and dozens of developers who were all switching to Windows as well. So I knew what people wanted, and I knew what was coming, and I figured that this was a good time to put it all together into one blog post. So do you mind giving a quick recap of what steps are needed to be taken to have a fabulous experience with Rails? Absolutely. And in order to do that, let's, if you don't mind, talk about the subsystem for Linux. Let's do it. what that means. So so Windows is, is new and constantly being refreshed, and there's quarterly updates in Windows 10. So not every version of Windows 10 is... Uh, 
is equal. So if you happen to be a person who's listening to this show and you uh, have a Windows machine, you can go and run WinVer, W-I-N-V-E-R. You can just go hit the Windows key and R for run and type WinVer, and you'll get a version. You're running Windows 10, but remember, Windows 10 has been around for a couple of years, several years. Uh, the version that I'm running right now is 1903, and that's 2019, and then 03 is March. So you might run this on your machine as we're as you're listening to us, and it's 1803 or 1809 or whatever. Um, you're going to want to be on 1903, which is March of 2019. You know, a recent build of Windows by running Windows Update and uh, making sure you get the latest stuff. And Windows has got all this historical context, but ultimately Windows is Windows. It's not Linux. And we wanted to make sure that people didn't have that feeling when they got to the dollar sign in their favorite tutorial and they said, I don't want to be here. And we know people who run SigWin. Did you ever run SigWin on your Windows machine? Oh, absolutely. All right. So SigWin is bash on Windows. But here's the thing, and this you'll appreciate this as a, as a computer scientist. It's not Linux, though. It's bash. They took the C code, the portable C code of the GNU utilities, and then they recompiled them against Windows instead of against Linux. So it's not calling Linux. It doesn't look like it's just a it's a simulacrum of Linux. It's not a virtual machine. It's just simply bash. But when you say ls, it does a dir, right? It just uses the Windows uh, file system APIs to list out the files. But it allows you to run your bash bash scripts. But it is it is a shell on top of Windows. What WSL does is when someone and and Ruby does help me out help me out with this when you're in Ruby and you say like fi open a file mm -hmm. does Ruby then call like when when does it hit C if I am in Ruby and I open a file when does C get involved Oh good question uh, right? yeah that that's in the parser so right so the parser is going to go and and be running this code it's going to interpret it and then Ruby on Windows calls the Windows file API, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then Ruby on Linux calls the Linux API and et cetera, et cetera. And, and if somebody wants to port Ruby to their world, then they're going to need to go and make sure that they, they build that bridge. Correct. I don't know what the API is for opening a file on Ruby, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. It isn't Ruby that does it. Ruby asks the operating system. And then the operating system is the one that actually opens the file, right? Same thing with Rails. Rails opens a port to go and listen on HTTP port 5000, ultimately Windows or Linux or Mac opens the port, the networking stuff. So with WSL, what they do is they take the Linux user mode binaries, the binaries in Linux, and they sit on top of Windows and they would basically do a left hand, right hand. The left hand is Windows, the right hand is, is uh, Linux, and Linux says, hey, open a file. And Windows goes, uh, I'm not Linux, but I'll do it for you. And it basically is a big old proxy. It's a lie. It's a fake out. It pretends to be Linux. It's actually the Linux user binaries, but there's no Linux kernel. And this was called WSL, the Windows subsystem of Linux. And it lets you run 95% of Linux stuff on Windows natively. So you can do this now. You can literally take your Windows machine, go to the store, and type Linux in the Windows store. And you can go and download Ubuntu right now. And you will, it's not a Windows Ubuntu. It's not Microsoft Ubuntu. It's actual Ubuntu. It's a tar file. And it'll come down and it'll install Ubuntu on your machine. But if you're using the first version of WSL, it's going to be kind of slow because it's not really Linux underneath. WSL 2 is what made your experience so nice. 
This is an actual Linux kernel. We now ship a Linux kernel with Windows 10. It is a real actual Linux kernel, and we're running a tiny little virtual machine, a little virtual machinelet, not the big VirtualBox Hyper-V, like uh, 30 gigabytes in two minutes to start up. It starts up in one second. So like right now, I'm you can't see this, but I'm going to open my terminal. Okay, my terminal's open. I'm going to open a tab. One, one thousand, two, one, and there it is. Now I'm at, I'm in Linux. That's how fast it was to open on on my machine. I did the same. It was just as fast. It's yeah. It's it's this is real. Like this is a thing. Okay, mm-hmm. you can run as many Linuxes as you want. Okay, you can have Ubuntu and OpenSUSE and Fedora. So whichever Linux makes you happy, whichever one makes you more successful running Ruby on Rails, great. So you go to the store, making sure you have a version of Windows 10 that's recent and you're going to turn on WSL2. Now you can go to the store and type in Linux. You'll see Ubuntu and all the other ones. You need to turn on the Windows subsystem for Linux. And there's a there's a one-line PowerShell that you have to do, a one-line PowerShell uh, that says enable Windows optional feature. You can Google for that or check a look at my, my post if you link to it. And then uh, if you are on the latest Windows Insider version of Windows, you would just set your distribution of Linux to version one or version two. It's totally up to you. Version two, of course, gives you all these new speed improvements. It's actually 10 times faster than the original one. Now, did you get the new terminal or are you using the one that's built into Windows? Oh, I followed your article. So oh, you I, followed went, it line. I okay, went the great. whole way. <laughs> that's, that makes me happy. So the terminal, the DOS prompt, the console on uh, Windows uh, sucks. Uh, it sucks and it has sucked for decades. Uh, it doesn't have tabs. It's just recently got true type fonts. It doesn't really scale very nicely. It's not, there's no transparency. It's just kind of like, welcome to the console. <laughs> so we've made this new open source Windows terminal and it is like Xterm or iTerm2. Like it's a legit, really cool terminal. And uh, it's open source. It's only on version 0.2. So it's just getting started. But in fact, if you checked your Windows Store yesterday or the day before, you would have got an update with even more and better tabs, and you can go and kind of bling it out as much as makes you happy. I've actually gone and made uh, memes and reaction GIFs. So when my builds fail or succeed, I get a meme in the background as an animated GIF in my terminal because I'm a total nerd. I love that. Yeah, it's fun. So once I've got Ubuntu running on the terminal, and the terminal is not required, but it just makes your experience nicer if you're a, a Mac person or an Ubuntu person. Then you can install Ubuntu. You can install 18.04 or 16.04, whatever makes you happy. I think 18.04 is the place to do for Rails. And then I literally just went to GoRails.com, and I went through the Ubuntu instructions. And this is really important. I went to the Ubuntu instructions on Windows because I was actually legitimately running Ubuntu. But the part that's interesting is that you might be listening and saying, wow, that's a lot of time for you to spend, Scott, just saying, use a virtual machine. But it's not, right? I've used VMs, you used VMs. Mm-hmm. VMs feel like another place. They're, like they're, in, they're elsewhere, right? You have your machine, your Windows machine, your Mac, your whatever, and then you have that other place which is your virtual machine and you moving files in and out of it are a hassle and it, it feels clunky. It, you can feel your computer like firing up because, ah, time to start the virtual machine. It feels like remote desktop. I mean, it feels like an entire different experience. It's a box inside a box and it's, it's not fun. WSL windows subsystem is not that. 
because I hope that you did the trick that I say where you go explorer.exe dot and you can actually open up your files. So you're running Linux, but you can see your files. You can open them up in Visual Studio Code. You can uh, talk to Rails in a natural way. Did you do the the extensions and the remote stuff as well in the Visual Studio Code? Yeah, that was the part that Scott like absolutely melted my mind how seamless it was was the uh the remote execution pack because it it's just it's great like it, it just feels native yeah and what's what's great about it and this is the not to put not to tease but it's native because it's native like it is native like it seems impossible but what I, I finally figured out why it's so brain melting we've all used visual studio code we enjoy it it's a nice lightweight editor and it has extensions and we install extensions. And of course, you know, you don't want to add too many extensions because then you'll just turn it into something kind of messy and large. Um, it allows you to have remote extensions. So you can install the Ruby extension, not inside Windows where it would not do any good because you don't have Ruby installed. You install it inside Ubuntu. So basically, Visual Studio Code runs in Windows, runs on Windows, runs, you know, outside Windows. And then when it needs to do Ruby stuff, it just talks over a local host into the other place, which is uh, Ubuntu, and it just works. So you have your extensions only being used on a uh, project by project or a uh, Linux by Linux basis. So if you were doing another Ruby project or a Python project or a Rust project, you could even have a separate distribution of Linux for that and have a separate extension. And it would only show up if you decided to open it on that, um, on that distribution. So it's a very nice, clean way of doing stuff. So when you're typing your Ruby, you're getting IntelliSense, right? You're getting mm -hmm. uh, syntax highlighting. The language server the language server for Ruby, the thing that parses the Ruby and gives you that dropdown and those instructions isn't running on Windows. So when you type object and then you hit dot, and there's a moment, and then it pops open a list of like, here's the things that you mean. That language server is running in Ubuntu. So you get absolute guaranteed compatibility. So all of your days of Rails and Ruby not feeling like Rails and Ruby, they feeling like they're a second class citizen on Windows are gone. Completely agreed. And it was just, it was incredibly seamless. And, you know, I typically use a very specialized IDE. I use Ruby oh, really? from oh, Jeff wow. Brains mm -hmm. okay, and cool. I installed it on Windows and I was all prepared to use it. And then I downloaded VS Code and used the remote execution pack. And I kind of shrugged my coworker who's still incredulous that I crossed over to Windows <laughs> that I'm just going to stay on VS Code. I was really happy with it. Yeah, it's pretty slick. And um, there's, you know, there's a couple of bugs and a couple of small things that aren't really perfect or intuitive. Like, for example, currently there's a bug where you have to think about your IP address and local host. And this is a really interesting thing, again, thinking from a computer science perspective, which is if you start up, you know, Puma, Rails server uh, in Ubuntu, what's local host? Like, is this a different machine or not? And there's two things to think about. There's the computer science perspective. Yeah, it's a different machine. It's a tiny virtual machine. But then there's the user experience. Do I think it's localhost? Do I feel like it's localhost? We, we postulate, we at Microsoft would postulate that it is localhost from the point of view of the user. Yes. Did you, did you find that intuitive? Yes, I was actually concerned whenever I booted my legacy Rails application for the first time, 
I was concerned that I was going to need to do some configuration within Ubuntu in order to see it on my Windows browser. Mm. But I didn't. Yep. It just worked. Right. And that's actually some magic that we're working on. We're about halfway there. It's not perfect. Uh, in the previous version, you would have to run ifconfig and look at your interface, your network interface. Um, and then you'd hit that kind of, you'd have a local network. Mm -hmm. Like if you've ever done virtual machines with, uh, well, with anything really, with Parallels or VirtualBox or Hyper-V, you'd hit 172. something, something, something. And it, it's just enough of a moment where you're like, uh, and, you, and you've othered your environment, right? Mm -hmm. But what we're doing here is we're noticing if you open a port in Ubuntu, your expectation is that that port should be available outside. So when we see that port opening in Ubuntu, we punch a hole and we are basically uh, routing localhost colon 3000 or whatever all the way in just seamlessly, just seamlessly. Uh, right now, on the current version, and I mentioned this on my blog post, you do have to bind to 0.0.0.0, which is the all available IPs. That bug has been fixed. The next version of Windows, which will come out in a couple of weeks, uh, just regular localhost. So that would be 127.0.0.1. So that extra little moment we have to go Rails server dash B for bind, mm -hmm. that will go away and it'll become even easier. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, yeah. when you first tweeted out the article, I saw the first comment was asking whether or not Ruby on Rails still existed. And of course, you had an amazing defense. But <laughs> why do you think that still happens? Um, here, here's the thing. Keep in mind that keep in mind that I run .NET, right? I'm a .NET person. And people say the same thing. They're basically saying anything over five or 10 years old must not exist. You know, and I don't want to be like old man who shakes fist at cloud, but you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. You've been doing this for some years. You, you, you're grown. Uh, you have a exciting, mature product that also has a dynamic com community, but just because it's not, you know, noun.js that came out yesterday, doesn't mean that it's not awesome. Um, and yeah, the Ruby on Rails hype machine 10 years ago was huge, but it's huge now. It's huge in the enterprise. It's, it's GitHub runs it. I mean, like, t just because it's not like, I don't know, new and it came out last week, uh, doesn't mean it's not amazing. .NET and .NET Core are, are having a renaissance right now in my, in my world, and people will look at me like it's COBOL. And I think it's frankly disrespectful. There's a lot of great stuff out there that is even older, 30 years old, that's, that's perfectly valid. I agree. I think there's a lot of value to be placed on stability. Uh, Ruby on Rails version six should be dropping anytime soon. And there mm -hmm. was a little bit of dismay in the community that the new features are stable needed features for enterprise <laughs> legacy applications. What? I know. Actually <laughs> listening to the users and making products that work and will work for years. That's, that's yeah. insane. Why would they do that? It's craziness. Mm. <laughs> so one of my best friends is currently working towards becoming a developer, which is extremely exciting. So I'd love to hear the story behind firsttimersonly.com. Oh, well, so Kent Dodds, uh, and Kent Dodds actually just came up with a new uh, podcast earlier this morning called, uh, I think it was Conversations with Kent. Uh, and I both share the idea that uh, it's too hard for someone to get started in open source and people should uh, be welcomed, but they, they, they roll into GitHub, they find their favorite project, they hit on the issues and they go, 
this is not a good place. There's no front door. There's no there's no place for first timers to show up that's friendly that says this is for for newbies. This is a place, and not only is this an issue that you can get involved in open source with, but it's something that is uh, something we'll walk you through. We as a team will help you be successful with this so that you're not alone in your room doing open source and feeling bad about yourself. You're joining a community and we've marked the issue as being appropriate for first timers. Now, this is not a unique idea. Kent had the idea. I had the idea. James Spencer had the idea. Like there's bots out there. Angie Gonzalez and Arlene Perez made a GitHub app that automates making these issues. This is one of those things where someone says, oh, like I made the light bulb. And it's like, well, it turns out 16 people all made the light bulb in the same week because it's a good idea, right? So mm -hmm. there's first timers only. There's your first PR, which is another great one that James, uh, James Spencer did. All of these are cool examples of places where we just want to knock the gatekeeping down and make it so I can be successful and enjoy myself. And first timers only just attempt to be kind of a, a homepage or an on-ramp for getting started. Is it automated or do you have community members out there like locating these issues? So right now, this is all just kind of like manual community type stuff. It's more of a movement than it is a piece of software. I would say that some of the, the bots, for example, the bots that uh, Angie Perez made would allow you to make one. So uh, if you go, or actually Angie Gonzalez and Arlene Perez, uh, it's a GitHub app that basically can go and you install it on your repository. And then if you name a branch first-timers, then it'll automatically see the branch and turn that into an issue. So there are ways you can just take the idea of having a friendly issue. Like it can be as simple as going to your existing open source project that you've got right now and tagging something as newbie friendly or first timers only friendly. And then when someone shows up there and they say, how do I get involved? They click on issues, I'm doing it right now. And they go and they see tags, labels, and they go, oh look, friendly for, friendly for newbies, good first issue. Good first issue is, I think, the term that came out a, lot, a number of years later from GitHub. So if you search for good first issue, these are all just this expressing the same uh, idea that everyone should have a spelling error or something simple. So helping contributors find your project with labels. Help wanted is another one that's used. But I think good first issue is great because that, that feeling that you get when you've committed and had your, your, your pull request merged the first time if you have a great first experience, it's pretty good chance you'll have a good second experience. That's a great point. When I was a bootcamp instructor, a lot of my students would spend most of their time building greenfield apps, but I slowly onboarded them onto either contributing to open source or writing content that could be published in, you know, a Ruby Weekly newsletter. Mm -hmm. And it was unbelievable the confidence boost they got when they were interacting with someone that wasn't me. That's cool. It's very cool. So um, to, su to sum up the show, if you have one piece of advice for listeners, whether it be about open source, community, or perhaps content creation, what would it be? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've been blogging for 20 years, and I've got 700 episodes of my podcast. Those are all incorporated and encapsulate my opinions about what my advice is. So I'll actually be a little meta for you. My advice to everyone is that you have a finite number of keystrokes left in your hands before you die. Who will you give those keystrokes to? So let's say 
that you email me after this podcast, right? And I've mm-hmm. seen you online and we've chatted a couple times, but you know, I, we're, we're friendly, but we're just getting to know each other. Right. Let's say, let's say Brittany emails me and says, Hey, great, great conversation. I have a question and uh, it's about rails. And I say, here, I do rails on WSL. And I like, oh, you know, Brittany's nice, but do I know her where I'm going to give her 3000 of my keystrokes? I don't know. That's a lot. Like I only have so many, right? That could take me an hour. For sure. But if I blogged about it, if I did a podcast, if I did a YouTube, if I put it in a wiki or a fac or on my website or in SharePoint or OneNote or a wiki or literally anywhere except an email back to you, then I just email you the link. And if I do that for 20 years, then I'll be a person on the internet that has a lot of content behind me. And I didn't really change anything. The only difference is I took all my emails and I made the information and the content public. So if you're just getting started, stop emailing people, take your keystrokes and put them literally anywhere but email, and then email people links because I'll email it to you and you'll say, hey, thanks, good job. And then the next person, even if only one additional person visits my blog, I've doubled the number of keystrokes. I love that. That's fantastic advice. Well, speaking of keystrokes, how can the listeners follow with what you're up to? Well, uh, I'm in an epic battle right now with Scott brand toilet paper tissue. <laughs> and if you can go and Google for Scott, uh, it's, it's Scott sports and Scott brand toilet paper. And those people, uh, put a restricted trademark on Scott. So if you, you know, you're like, hey, I'm going to blog about this great podcast that Brittany and Scott did together. Make sure you link Scott to Hanselman.com, my website, so that we can defeat Scott brand toilet paper. That's fabulous advice. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the show today. After this conversation today, I really hope all the listeners give Rails on Windows a try. 